A reading from the first letter of Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who in great mercy has engendered a new birth for us into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, into an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you all, who in the power of God are kept through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the end time. In this you rejoice, even when necessary for you to suffer various trials, in order that the examination of your faith, more precious than gold, which though perishable is tested by fire, may be found yielding praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You have not seen him, yet you love him. You do not see him now, yet you believe in him and rejoice with a joy glorious and beyond words. You are receiving the completion of your faith the salvation of your souls. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm your lead pastor here at Zao. Is everybody feeling uh, pink in church today? I love it when our band and our tech team conspire to sneak an F-bomb into the service without telling me. Oh my, oh my, yeah. But I do think that that, that that expression, that urgency behind that message, that you are perfect, you are loved, it comes with a great deal of force because it is fighting against so many messages in our world and in our church. Am I right? Like that message, you are perfect, you are loved, the core of you is undefiled, incorruptible, that is a difficult message to reach to the inside of our hearts, even if we have the strength of mind to hold it in our heads, which frankly, I don't all the time, I will admit. But we are in the season of Easter. Now, I don't know if that makes sense to anybody anymore. Easter feels like it was quite a minute ago, yeah? But in the church calendar, we are still in the midst of Easter, the season of remembering the nature of resurrection. It aligns with us in this part of the world with the springtime, which I greatly appreciate because as I've admitted to a few of you um, over the last several weeks, during the course of winter, I, I become a disbeliever in spring. <laughs> I'm like, ah, it's not really coming, is it? And when it comes, it'll go straight to summer and we'll just be all sweat and sunscreen. And then the spring comes and I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys, have you seen this? It's so good. And that moment of like holding on to that memory that things can come back to life, that new life is springing forth constantly in our world, in our community, in our being, that is worth holding on to, not just for one Sunday, but for a whole season. And we will come into other seasons. We are about to hit Pentecost, which is another goodie, the infusion of the Spirit of God, this fire that will burn with us through a summer of joy and connection and justice. 
But for right now, we simply meditate on the truth of the resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus is a reminder of a different kind of life than we are accustomed to here. Now, we've talked over the last couple of weeks about the different ways that Jesus and Paul have talked about what life and death mean and how completely, radically different those ideas are from the messages we get in our culture about what life really means and what death really means. But part of that difference of what Jesus is talking about and what Jesus is doing through the cross and resurrection is about the cycles of life and death. This understanding that life is not the good thing that ends in death, but actually that the cycles of life and death are continuous, and that things must die, but they break forth into new life. Every death in the earth over the winter or shorter cycles creates the fertile ground for new life. And Jesus does that again and again in us. Now this text, which may seem very dense, a little flowery, very bible -y. we often tell stories here, but this is just sort of an exhortation of God's promise of new life for us and the hope that we hold on to in that. But it is very dense with meaning, and so I'd like to unpack it. What is the hope we have in the resurrection? Why does it change everything to say that Jesus goes through that death and resurrection and offers us a new life, a new birth, and a new hope? Because that's what this passage is saying, that through death and resurrection, Jesus brought us into a new life, which is a living hope. What does it mean to have a living hope? Well, it clarifies that our hope comes from our inheritance, an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. Now, when we think of inheritance, what comes to mind? Money. Money comes to mind. Now, inheritance has been pretty narrowed in our culture, but in the time of this writing, inheritance, it meant money, it meant resources. It meant the means to live. It meant generational possibilities. And receiving an inheritance meant being welcomed into a family, a community, a lineage. An inheritance in the biblical context is the resources to live, but it is also a community and identity. And when we turn to the earliest stories we have about what our inheritance is as children of God. We learn that in the beginning of time, we were marked with the image of God. The nature of God is imprinted on our very being. God made us in God's own image and said, hmm, very good, very good. That very goodness, that is the inheritance that is what it means to be children of God. And no, it's not cash. But it is absolutely the resources we need to live, to be fully alive, to have our hope be a living, breathing thing that sustains us and builds the community into the kingdom alongside Jesus. God's goodness, the mark of God's love, is 
imprinted on your very core. And that is why we all feel so very good and so worthy of love every minute of every day, right? That was a laugh line. If you're feeling very uncomfortable now, know that it's because, yeah, I get it. Like, we don't. We don't feel connected to that. That is a really deep wound that we are so disconnected from that core image of God's love, of divine identity that brought us into being, that made us in their own image, that that is the core of who you are and you can't feel it? That's a red flag. That's evidence of a wound. And that's evidence of a wound that is too deep to have been formed in your lifetime alone. This disconnection we have from our core goodness that is inherited too. But it is not inherited from the God of goodness who brought us into being. It is inherited through generational trauma in our community and our cosmos. People feel like trash, y'all. Do you feel like trash sometimes? Ugh, I feel like trash. And you know what? It doesn't help that I've been told that I'm trash. Have you been told you're trash? We have been told over and over again, directly and indirectly, by messages of this world, institutions of this empire, and folks in our own churches and spiritual communities, that we are trash. And you know what? I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't see evidence for it. That's not who God is. That's not who the scripture tells us we are. So why do we have this shared wound? Why are we so disconnected from our own internal goodness that not only do we hate ourselves, but some of us take it upon ourselves to convince one another that they aren't good either? It's a project. You know some of these people? Some of them are pastors and preachers. Some of them are politicians. Some of them are just your relatives you don't want to see at the holidays. But people are taking it upon themselves to let everybody know how bad they are inside. That their internal core self is bad. And I got to say that's anti-gospel. It's terrible news. Because the God of the universe promised us as soon as they brought us into being, you are very good. You are made and marked in my image. Now, does that mean that we don't make mistakes? Absolutely not. Does that mean that we don't have these wounds? Absolutely not. Does it mean that we don't inflict and re-inflict these wounds on ourselves and one another and God? No. But it means that the core of who we are is good. When we disbelieve in who we are, we experience shame. Now, there is a distinction in the world of feelings talk between guilt, which is a feeling we have when we have done something bad, and shame, which is a feeling we have when we think we are something bad. Guilt is a natural part of making mistakes. It is a, is a hurt that we feel upon ourselves. It is an instigation to address our behavior and become accountable to heal. But shame. Now, my beliefs about the devil... <laughs> 
They are hard to articulate, and they shift like the wind. But if I believed in the devil, I think the devil's tool, favorite tool, is shame. That core disconnection from self. That disbelief in God's goodness. Because that is what we are disbelieving in when we think that we are not good. If you've got the mark of God on your heart, if the core of who you are is made in God's image, and you believe that you are bad, that is a disbelief in love. That is a disbelief in the divine nature of God who brought you into being. And yet, somehow, we have been told that in order to be faithful to to God, we have to hate ourselves. This doesn't make any sense. This does not make any sense. Because it is the nature of God that is imprinted on our very souls. The core of who we are. Now, shame is a wound. Shame is like a self-replicating virus even. Shame is passed on and on. Now some shame is about survival. Shame is a tool that we use to ourselves to try and get ourselves to comply or to be the kind of person that someone else could love. Now I think that that might be counterintuitive, right? To think, I convinced myself that I'm bad so that someone will love me. But it is what we are ultimately doing. Because if we convince ourselves we are bad, then maybe we could change. Maybe we could become someone lovable. Maybe we could become someone worthy of love. I'm here to tell you, you can't. You can't become someone worthy of love because you are someone worthy of love. You cannot change your lovable nature. You cannot change your self-worth. But the delusion that you can comes along with it, this this fear, this terror that who you are right now isn't good enough, isn't lovable enough, isn't godly enough. But you are, by your very nature, you are very good. You are very good. And trusting in God means trusting in your very goodness. But this self-replicating virus, ooh, it's a nasty one. It's a convincing one. We get these messages real early. That's one of the ways we know that it's a generational wound because adults pass it along to children who pass it along to the next generation and beyond. We get these messages starting when we're very little from the core adults in our life, from the peripheral adults in our life, from the culture at large. We operate on this logic a lot that kids are bad. There's a parenting expert named Dr. Becky Kennedy. She has a book, it's called Good Inside. Guess what it's about? I love Dr. Becky Kennedy, and I'm going to be the first to admit that I think my therapist recommended her book to me not because I'm parenting, (laughs) but because I struggle to figure out my internal goodness. A lot of us are reparenting ourselves. Now, that might be because our parents failed us in major, major ways. And it might be because our parents actually did quite a good job, but we are living in a really broken, wounded world. But no matter what, a lot of us as adults are trying to revisit some of the core messages that we received as children from anywhere in the ether about our internal badness. And I do recommend Dr. Becky Kennedy as a resource on that. She explains that adults are taught and socialized to think that kids are bad. Kids are brats. Kids are always trying to get away with things. Kids are trying to provoke us. And it comes from this assumption of internal badness. 
Now, when she started doing her parenting work, she was in what's known as a behaviorist model that basically just looked at all the ways that kids acted, said, we like this, we don't like this. What can we do to make you do the stuff we like? Now, there's all kinds of proven methods, sticker charts, and rewards, and punishments that can actually get kids to comply and do mostly the things that adults like. But (laughs) Becky was doing that for a while, and she was like, this feels terrible. This feels terrible, and yes, I can control these children's behavior, but is that what I really want? Is that the relationship we want with the generations coming up to train them up in compliance? No. Now, Dr. Becky doesn't go so far as to say it's carceral logic, but I will. That is the logic of a prison system. Compliance and control, coercion. And so Dr. Becky, not going that far, just said, this does not heal my relationship with these children. This does not create an environment where kids can feel good about themselves and make choices based on the people they want to be. This assumes that their behavior will be terrible unless I control it for them and teach them how to control it themselves. How many of you are thinking right now, like, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, if I don't control myself, I'll be terrible. This is, this is a logic that I get into a lot when I'm engaging with people, especially people from my past, in the evangelical world around the threat of hell and the reward of heaven, they say, well, without the threat of hell, what's stopping you from being a murderer? And I'm like, well, it's good to know that the only thing stopping you from murdering me is the threat of hell. (laughs) But actually, I don't think that's true, right? The assumption of the hell punishment logic in our churches and even the punishment logic in our schools and our homes for children is that inherently we are terrible human beings and that if we are not controlled meticulously, we will do terrible things because we are terrible people. There is no internal assumption that, for instance, the love of God is self-rewarding that being a person seeking after God's own heart, as the evangelicals would say, is not something to be done for a reward in heaven later, but because eternal life is unlocked here and now. That being fully alive is the desire of my heart, that the core of my internal goodness longs for and reaches out to God and toward the internal goodness of all of creation around me, and that feeling into that, living into that, being the person I was designed to be is a reward in itself. We are not terrible creatures in need of aggressive punishment to to produce compliance. And yet that is how we start very, very young. And whatever messages we receive when we are young, we replicate in our heads over and over again. When you make a mistake, How do you talk to yourself about it? Are you harsh with yourself? Do you judge your character? Do you tell yourself you are lazy or stupid? This is us recreating that generational wound. 
This is an assumption of our internal badness. You are not lazy. You are not stupid. You are not a bad person. Now, the fundamental mistrust of our goodness is a matter of faith. We are called to trust in the goodness of God that is outside of us, bigger than us, right? But also that is imprinted onto our very being. Now, Kennedy and these other parenting experts say that we, when a child behaves in a way that's destructive, we should be curious and not judgmental. We should trust that their internal goodness is struggling, groping around in the dark, trying to figure out how to express itself, how to get needs met. Every behavior is not an expression of internal badness. It's an expression of an unmet need. Now, I observe this to be true for children. And if we can give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, give children the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, that kid's acting up in class. What's going on? What do they need? What's hurting right now? Now, that doesn't mean that we don't put boundaries up. We do. We set boundaries. But we also seek to meet those needs in healthier ways. We have curiosity about what's going on. We validate that child's experience. We are called to do the very same with ourselves and one another. To validate the experience we're having. To be curious about what's really going on. Why am I acting in this way? Now we know we're not alone. Paul talks about this too. One of my favorite passages in Romans. Why do I do the things I hate? Why do I not do the things I love? I hate that I do the things that I don't like to do, but I do them anyway. Right? Like, this is Paul having that same experience. We know that's part of the human experience. But coming to it with curiosity is coming to it with faith. Faith in the God who created us in their own holy image. And this is what we trust God to do with us too. To come to us with curiosity and hope. To come to us with that promise, you are good. I made you that way. You are good at your very core. If you are doing something that feels bad, that's because you have an unmet need. And we better fix that because you're causing harm <laughs> to yourself, to your relationships, to your community. But it's not because you're bad. It's because you're hurting. And we got to solve that hurt before it snowballs into more and more hurt. That is a very different way to approach our sinfulness, our woundedness, to say, hey, every behavior is an expression of an unmet need. And in the kingdom, all of our needs are met. So let us build a world where we can have our needs met in healthy ways, ways that do not cause further harm. Now that core goodness we need to reconnect back to it intentionally. And I want to promise you something right now. That core goodness, it's not something you can lose. There is nothing so bad that you could do. There is no distance you could stray from your internal self that would cause you to lose it. And people come to me all the time. If you're about to think that I'm referencing a conversation with you, I promise I'm not because I've had it with so many people. But people say, I just, I wasn't myself. I lost myself in that relationship. 
in that addiction, in that job. I felt like I was doing things that weren't aligned with like who I am. I don't remember who I am. I don't remember who I want to be. Have I ever known that core goodness, that thread of God's love? It's at the very center of you. It is like like a golden vibrating string at the center of your identity. And what we are trying to do as a people who have experienced fracturing and brokenness in that wor- in this world, we are trying to weave ourselves back together around that core goodness. But you cannot lose it. There is nothing that you can do to separate yourself from the love of God, and that is at the core of who you are. Even when you suffer necessary trials, even when you experience the brokenness and pain of this world inside of you, at the core of you, you may have siphoned off pieces of yourself to survive. You may have become unrecognizable to yourself in certain spheres. I don't doubt that. But you cannot lose that core of who you are. And our job is actually to collect those pieces of ourselves that have drifted, that have been packed away, that have been buried in the ground, that have been set on fire, to collect them back, to thread them back through to that core, that promise at the heart of who we are. You are good. You are very good. We talk sometimes here about sin, about the nature of the universe, a tapestry intended to be woven together, all these different distinct pieces in right relationship, torn by woundedness, sin, oppression, micro-tears, major gashes, all of those things that separate us from ourselves, from one another, from God, those are tears in the fabric of the universe. Well, you are made of stardust. You are a part of this cosmos. And so when you feel fractured inside, it's because you are. Those wounds that we call sin, we experience them even internal to our own selves. That's that gap that you're feeling between the core of who you are and the idea you have of yourself. It's a chasm that needs to be woven back together with pieces of your own self. And so we do, we gather those pieces of ourselves that we have rejected. We gather those pieces of ourselves that we have weaponized. We gather those pieces of ourselves that we have found unacceptable or unrecognizable, and we weave them back together, trusting that that internal goodness can hold all of us. We are made in the image of God. And you may think, I am too tattered. I am in shreds over here, Jonah. I cannot piece it all back together. I don't even remember some of those parts. I don't recognize them. But your inheritance as a child of God is the goodness and love of God, and it is incorruptible, it is undefiled, it is unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you all. Now I want to pause there for a second on kept in heaven, because that can feel so distant, right? Heaven is far away. God's got a lockbox with my goodness in it. No wonder I can't find it. Except that heaven 
and the kingdom of heaven is something that Jesus talks about us bringing into being. And Jesus talks about it in confusing ways because I think there's some part of it that's a little bit beyond our comprehension. It's a little bit, you know, general relativity energy behind it where it's like many thousands of things at once and like here and beyond time and all that. One of the things that you can hold on to right now is the fact that when Jesus talks about the kingdom, one thing he says is the kingdom is in you. The kingdom of heaven is alive in you. It is heaven itself protecting you, protecting your internal goodness. It lives protected inside of you. Inside of you, there is something so divine it cannot be destroyed, no matter how far you feel you have strayed. Now, this is true for you, which is hard to believe. I see it. I see it in this community. I see the goodness. I see those threads of God's divine love. And I see your disbelief. And I get it. Don't feel shame about that part either. That's part of it. That's part of the necessary trials of this life, is to confront that shame. But I believe it. I see it in you, and I believe because it is true for all people, and it is true for ourselves. And so we are called, through our belief in God, through our belief in resurrection, the living hope is looking at ourselves and saying, I trust that God is alive in here. It is looking at our peers, our community, and saying, I see that God is alive in here. It is looking at the world, broken though it may be, and saying, I believe that the resurrection is real that my hope is alive, that goodness is vibrating, is weaving itself through all creation. And we take heart in that. That is our living hope. Our belief in God, our belief in Jesus, requires then our belief in ourselves, each other, and all of God's good creation. We are called to believe in that incorruptible goodness and to heal ourselves to one another, gathering up our broken, weaponized, shattered, tattered, on fire pieces, bringing them all along with and healing. Now, when we seek after our own goodness, when we seek after one another's goodness, trusting it is there, even in the midst of all that pain and suffering and oppression of life, when we look to see the divine, the image of God, the inheritance we share in the resurrection of Jesus, we will see it revealed we will see it revealed and we will praise God and praise love and our hope will grow. This word in the scripture, it is for times of trouble. Times when it is hard to remember that you are at your core incorruptibly good. That the people around you at their core are incorruptibly good. Because our truest selves, the nature of creation which cannot be destroyed is made in the very image of God, the image of love. When we can't see it, we need to help each other see it. When we can't see it in ourselves, we need to see it in each other. When we can't see it in each other, we need to preach it to each other. <laughs> we need to live as though it is real and our faith will be made alive. And when all of that fails, when we look around and we see ourselves and each other and the whole world and we feel hopeless, we rest in the knowledge that God sees, that God treasures us, that God, the God who knows us because God created us, 
They see our mistakes. They see our struggle. They see our dumpster fires. They see the empire. And they still see that incorruptible, undefiled, unfading goodness at the core of each and every one of us. And they are filled with love. They are filled with love. (coughs) We say that God is love. And sometimes it can be helpful in these flowery texts to insert that word. If we say God is love, let us talk of God as love. And so this text ends with, with the praise. You have not seen love, yet you love love. You do not see love now, yet you believe in love. And you rejoiced with a joy glorious and beyond words. And if we take that a step further, to try and recognize love as the image of God on our core selves. We say, you have not seen the pureness of your heart. Yet, you love God, therefore you have love for your truest self. You have it. You do not see your truest self now, yet you believe in love and you rejoice with a joy glorious and beyond words. When we trust in the goodness of our very nature, we are receiving the completion of our faith, the salvation of our souls, the wholeness for which we long, and the picture of perfection promised to us in the beginning and coming for us in the end of all things. I'd like to pray with you, as I always do at the end of the teaching, but we're going to do it in a way that's embodied, because this can't just live here And it is an enormous distance from our heads to our hearts, right? And so I'm going to invite you to pray with me with your bodies. And this is an invitation, so feel free to sit quietly and not do that if that's what you want to do. But I want you, if you would like, to just attend to your body for a second. Maybe feel the ground beneath you or the seat holding you up. Notice the room you are in, whether that is here in person or if you are joining us online, just feel the quality of the air. Perceive the light in the room. Notice the life around you. We're going to take three deep breaths in and out at your own pace. now, I would like you to try and identify in your body one little fiber of that thread of shimmering, incorruptible, unfading, undefiled goodness. Where in your body can you perceive that goodness? Maybe it's in your chest. as you breathe in. Maybe it's at the tippy top of your head. Maybe it's in a pinky finger or toe. But I want you to find that one piece of you that is grounded in God's love. And I want you to send your breath there. 
Help it to glow as brightly as it can. Notice if it has a color or a shape, a feeling. Feel its vibration. Trust in its goodness. And know that it is there. You can put a hand over it if you'd like or attend to it in some other way, but I want you to just pay all of your attention to this one spot as I pray. God, thank you so much for making us in your image. God, you are good and you have shared your goodness with us. Very good indeed. God, help us to connect to and grow our sense of goodness. Help us to remember that core of who we are, that gift you have given us. Help us to trust it in ourselves and one another. And help us to mend our broken pieces back to the core of who we are. I want you to spend a few more breaths to that part of your body. And I want you this week to try and remember when you are feeling down or when those voices, those unkind and judgmental voices that have lived on generations in our minds start to speak to you. You don't have to argue with them, but you don't have to listen to them either. And I want you to connect back to this part in your body this goodness that you have felt. God, protect us and keep us. Thank you for making us very good. Amen.